0: Welcome to Centering, the Asian-American Christian podcast. This season, we're discussing how the Bible speaks to Asian-American biblical scholars and how the church shapes and informs their scholarship. I'm Jeanette Oak, your host. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad you could join us for this episode of Centering. And for you who are new, are joining us for the first time, centering is the Asian American Christian podcast that talks about all things related to Asian American Christian life and living out Asian American Christian faith. And so season eight is really exciting because it's focused on the role of the Bible, specifically how biblical scholars are shaped by and how they do their work for the church. Why do we need biblical experts and how does our expertise reach us and impact our understanding about God, the interpretation of the Bible and ministry? And so to help us broach these questions, I invited Dr. Max Lee. I should say my name is Jeanette Oak and I'm associate professor of New Testament here at Fuller Theological Seminary. So let me tell you a little bit about Max. Dr. Max Lee is professor of New Testament at North Park Theological Seminary. He's ordained as a Baptist minister and he has had a host of ministry experiences. He served as a pastor, preacher, college staff member, youth leader, and short term missionary to Japan. And this was a lot of this was in Southern California as well, so I've been told. His primary research area is the Apostle Paul in his Greco-Roman philosophical, cultural, and literary environment. He's an active preacher and teacher for churches in the Chicagoland area. And Max is really passionate about preparing students for a lifetime of pastoral ministry through seminary and theological education. And he does this by helping students develop the skill set needed to be better preachers and teachers of God's word. So I really can't thank you enough for joining us. I just want to say a little bit about your work, Max, that your most recent book is called Moral Transformation in Greco-Roman Philosophy of the Mind, Mapping the Moral Milieu of the Apostle Paul and His Diaspora, Jewish Contemporaries, which was published twenty in 2020, I think.
1: That's right, and, with, uh, more
0: with more With yeah. more yeah. And though you do a lot of work on Paul, you've also done quite a bit of work on the book of Revelation. And what's really intriguing to me is you're currently, as I understand it, doing research on the theology of pleasure.
1: Yes, it's part of uh, a fellowship that I received in 2021 with the Henry Center, and Mm -hmm. uh, I'm still working on the book, but I'm going to give a little bit of it today as part of our our scriptural reading.
0: That's awesome. So let's do that. And Max, I've known you for a while now and I've known of your work, but it wasn't really until, was it last year at the Society of Biblical Literature that we met in the flesh in person.
1: Yes, so, yes, and 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 on a great occasion, the debut inaugural session of Asian American Biblical Interpretation Group at IBR.
0: Yeah, so we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But it is just wonderful to see you and have you here on Centering, and thanks for coming all the way from Chicago. And oh, <laughs> well, thank you for inviting
1: me. It's an honor and pleasure. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So Max, tell us about what you're working on these days. What's been exciting you lately? Can you give us a sneak peek into your writing and research?
1: Sure. I would actually like to read a biblical text from 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. And it's it's about prayer, but uh, it's situated in what I consider to be somewhat of an exegetical puzzle. Why Paul says to couples, um, let's refrain from sexual intimacy in order to make time or space for prayer. And so it started off theologically provocative, challenging, but I think it ended quite exciting in a pastoral way. Um, The text is, uh, or the reading of this text is actually based on a chapter of my current book project, A Theory of Pleasure, Uh, and it tries to integrate theology and science, and to do that in biblical studies is sometimes a little bit tough, but nevertheless, uh, it led me to uh, the power of prayer. And why Paul uses sexual intimacy as an analog to what prayer does. So let me read 1 Corinthians 7, one through five. This is my own English translation from the Greek text. Uh, Verse one, now concerning the issues you wrote about, and then he's going to now quote a Corinthian slogan. So this is from the Corinthians. It is appropriate if a man does not touch a woman, end of quote. Now we're back to Paul in verse two. But on account of sexual immorality, Let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Let the husband pay back his debt to his wife, meaning his conjugal debt. And in the same way, the wife also to her husband. The wife does not have power over her own body, but the husband does. And in the same way, the husband does not have power over his own body, but the wife does. Do not rob one another, meaning of the conjugal debt. One is owed to each other, except at a mutual agreement for a set time, in order to create space for prayer. And then be together again in order that Satan may not tempt you on account of your, and here's a Greek word, akrasia, which is when the mind is overcome by passion, which sometimes some Bible translations render tamely as a lack of self-control. So uh, uh lot of things to talk about in this text, but some quick observations. Paul seems to describe sexual intimacy uh, as a mutual giving one body to the other, so mm-hmm. that the wife does not have power over her own body, but the husband does. And in the same way, the husband does not have power over his own body, but the wife does. And I think in a Greco-Roman patriarchal world, where sexual abuse was all too frequent this is very dangerous language, the relinquishing mm-hmm. of power and authority over one's body. And it requires, I think, a very deep amount of trust between the two parties. Sexual intimacy between a husband and wife constitutes a profound act of mutual self-giving and mutual belonging to each other. And this kind of mutual vulnerability, trust, and giving of self is akin to what happens in prayer. Okay. So. Yeah. So I think uh, now we're wondering, well, what happens in prayer that uh, this kind of vulnerability and trust and self-giving happens? Well, um, here I'm depending a lot on the work of Sarah Coakley uh, as, as a dialogue partner who sees the analogy between sexual intimacy and one's prayer or spiritual life. So I'm referring especially to her book, uh, The New Asceticism, published by Bloomsbury in 2015. Mm-hmm. And it's a dialogue partner. In other words, what I'm sharing is my own work in, uh, that's informed by some of the research she does. But the this mutual w- vulnerability um, happens in the very prayer act of prayer as an event, mm-hmm. when the one who prays gives him, him or herself fully to the Lord, but the, also lo- the Lord gives himself fully to us when we pray. So the, so prayer becomes a means through which we experience the deepest kind of communion with Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul has alluded to this in 1 Corinthians 6, especially verses 16 and 7, 16 and 7, where he calls our deep communion with Christ a cleaving mm-hmm. to the Lord. He makes the marriage union when two become one flesh an analog mm-hmm. for how the believer in one's is one's spirit with, with the Lord, with Christ. So this then brings us to the, I think the provocative question. Why, what is Paul's rationale for why married man and woman should mutually agree to abstain from sexual intimacy in order to create the time and, and space for prayer? Um, it almost sounds as if a believer's spiritual union with Christ can somehow be disrupted by one's physical union with one's spouse does sexual intimacy have a canceling effect on on prayer? Even if the sexual union is not what Paul calls pornea or morality, but it's Mm -hmm. rather sexual intimacy within a marriage context. So um, this is a question that I was raising from the text as I was working at the Henry Center and on the project of pleasure. And to say my thesis in one statement, I would say prayer is better than sex. That prayer is a higher order of pleasure even something as beautiful and mysterious as sexual intimacy in in marriage. What I think Paul is doing here is that he doesn't think that they cancel each other, but they are competitive. I think competitive might be the word. Maybe it's best to kind of describe what prayer is uh, in light of Sarah Coakley's work, in New asceticism. She describes prayer as an experience in which we radically surrender control to the spirit. There's a close analog between surrendering to Christ and the ecstasy of human sexual passion. Close intimate relationship is at the heart of both experiences. Mm -hmm. So prayer is a kind of passion for God's presence. The experience Mm -hmm. of prayer involves the whole self in such a deep communion with God. And here's the punchline that Paul could advise believing couples to refrain from sexual intimacy so that the one who's praying can give themselves fully to the Lord in and quote, in undivided devotion to Christ or to the Lord, in verse 7, 35. So, in other words, if I want to give myself fully to to the Lord in prayer, I don't want to engage in activity where I'm giving myself fully over to someone else. They're in some ways they're somewhat competitive and analogical, and it is this mysterious communion with God that actually can transform and realign the desires and 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 the. Character of, of believers. So, what I want to say is that I think that's what's going on with First Corinthians seven through one through five, and I raise this question about intimacy of prayer because I think it's a crucial image. I'm crucial issue pastorally. Mm. The way I read the Christian canon, the sexual intimacy is appropriate only within a marriage context. And yet we have many singles who uh, I like to say have the unwanted gift of singleness sometimes. What about them? Are they, uh, how, uh, how can they flourish in Christ? Is it, is the, um, is it what if they don't experience certain pleasures in life? Are they somehow robbed of human flourishing? And I want to say no, because Paul posits here that spiritual intimacy is God is the highest form of pleasure. And the ultimate euphoric moment in our, it, it could be exciting, exhilarating. And I would like to say that I've experienced this kind of kind of prayer in, in, in small portions. I've known other Christians who experience this kind of prayer, that prayer can be this powerful. And to be honest, oftentimes that's not within white evangelicalism, but it's within the Asian American uh, churches and communities that I've been a part of who have a, such a robust prayer life. Um, I'm often put to shame by by the way they how much they're committed to prayer and to really meeting God in prayer.
0: Whoa, okay. Lots going on here, Max. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so you yeah. also anticipated some further questions, but that's yeah. okay. I like that. So thank you for giving us a taste of some of the research you're doing mm. and talking about prayer and, and spiritual intimacy mm. with God as the highest form of pleasure. Mm i think that is a mind mind mind-blowing kind of concept Mm. i really appreciate how you're connecting the end of first corinthians 6 with what paul is talking about first corinthians 7 so i have tons of questions like trying to like organize my thoughts here but basically i can imagine a retreat or some sort
1: of like book or some sort of
0: (laughs) Prayer is better than sex
1: yeah yeah i'm gonna make that a chapter title i love that
0: is better than sex now of course you're right. Not everyone may have, may be able to even fathom the analogy mm. or that, that sex could be a prayer that, that, that Paul is actually really making them analogous. and mm. In fact, prayer being the higher pleasure, sex being analogous to prayer. I guess also in doing that, it seems then that Paul is redefining sex for his addressees mm. because it's not necessarily commonplace to think of sex as so mutually self-giving.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So would you
0: say that Paul is in a way talking about that, not only because he's talking about marriage in the context of this pe- chapter, but is it in order to set up prayer? Is that part of the movement you think he's doing?
1: Yeah, I think it's very countercultural. So one of the reasons why I'm most fascinated by the Greco roman world is because it, see, it helps me to see Paul at his best in a missional context. I'm interested in Paul uh, as, as a missional minister to, to his gentile congregations. How does he take a gospel that's rooted in the Old Testament Judaism and provide a conceptual translation, not just a, a, a linguistic translation, but a conceptual translation for the major tenets of the gospel and how they should be practiced in the Greco-Roman world? I think that's the basis for my understanding of how intercultural readings of the Bible works. Seeing how Paul does that intercultural reading for his congregations, I think very much in the Greco-Roman patriarchal society, Paul might not. Be as radical as sometimes we want them to be, but nevertheless, this is countercultural. Usually, what I do in my classes is just to illustrate patriarchy in the Greek world. I, I'll read a poem from Catalyst, is one of his ep- epigrams, and in the poem, it's supposed to be you know parody. It's supposed to be something that people laugh at, but he mentions that a woman is not in control of her body, that uh, when she is uh, single. Two, one third belongs to the mother, one third belongs to the father, one third belongs to the daughter. Mm-hmm. And then when the, the parents give the daughter over to marriage to someone else, they surrender their two thirds. So the husband owns two thirds of, of the, and this is all parody. This is all supposed to be a way to kind of mock the system. But the idea is that women didn't have control of their bodies socially and experientially. In the Greco-Roman world, and Paul says something radical here. He—it's a mutual giving. Mutual, yeah. Yeah, it's—it's it's, it's different from rights. I think the—I think Paul's careful not to use the language of rights because if I maintain my rights and someone else maintains their rights, we might not get along. But if I surrender my lights rights or my, I surrender my uh, share my body with my spouse and she shares her body with me. There's a mutual surrender. It only works if both parties participate. And he says very clearly in is the same way, the exact same way, a husband doesn't own his own body. That's radical. The Republican one patriarchal world would say, no, that's not the case. But um, the husband owns his own body and he owns his wife's body. But nevertheless, Paul f- flips that. And, and so what he, I think what he's trying to do is talk about mutual belonging mutual indebtedness, a debt of love, mutual care for one another, and it doesn't work if it's not mutual. So the word for mutual agreement here is actually safonis, where we get the word symphony or harmony. And I think he really wants this to be, uh, for lack of a better word, if I modernize it, a consensual intimacy from both parties. And if it's not that, then there's something wrong. Whatever it says afterwards, it's not. then stops being a proper analog to prayer. Because God gives himself fully to us when we enter into his presence. He doesn't hold anything back. The cross is a testimony that God gives himself fully to us when we enter into communion with him. Uh, Prayer is an act where we get to give ourselves fully to God and God gives himself fully to us. And, And that experience is so powerful uh, it's not only the highest order of pleasure, but it's also and, and a source of joy, but it also changes us.
0: The deepest form of intimacy too, right? Yeah.
1: Deepest form of intimacy. That's not combined to those who are married, but also right. those who are single.
0: Right. Okay. We're going to come back to this. Okay? okay. Given your very rich ministry background, can you tell us when you decided you realized or when, when you realized you wanted to become a biblical scholar?
1: Oh, yes. In college. like um, So that's why for much of my early ministry years, I was dedicated to, to campus ministry. So I, as you shared, I, I'm i a native California, Northern California. So Sue and I, my wife Sue, we're approaching our 30th anniversary coming up in December. Yay. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and But we've been living in Chicagoland for about since 2003. So it's almost been 20 years. My sons were Chicago raised, but they're both born in California. So I grew up, in a Christian home, but I don't think I really had my own faith until college. So I went to the University of California, Berkeley. I'm going to use the 1980s term. I I went there as a gunner. Now I was out to conquer the world. And in my horizon, I adopted the immigrant rhetoric, Korean parent immigrant rhetoric, that the only acceptable um, occupations were being a doctor, engineer, lawyer, and everything else, you know, it's not worth it. So I was on the medical school track. I think the biggest point of my journey is one, a renegade a Christian ministry. I, I like to call them renegade because they thought out of the box. But the Korean Baptist Student Union reached out to me. And for one year, I had stopped going to church. It was my parents' faith, not my own. And yet they invited me to Bible study. And long story short, I gave my life to Christ through a Bible study offered by the Korean Baptist Student Union. So that was, was started my journey. My junior year... I was still thinking of going to medical school. I had all my ducks lined up, uh, grades, professor's recommend, recommendations. Um, I had one year, one and a half years of research uh, experience in entomology lab and, uh, and um, uh, sorry, microbiology lab. And then I also did volunteer work at the trauma center at San Francisco Hospital. So I had everything ready and then- The ideal um, candidate. Yeah, I was, ideal. I was ready to go. All I did was take, and I was ready to take the MCATs. I was about to go. And then the, the, the church I was a part of needed, they had an ongoing rotation to send missionaries to Machida Christian Center in Tokyo, Japan. They needed a missionary to go. And during a prayer meeting, the pastor's wife came up and said, you know, I really got the impression that you should go. And I thought, that's crazy. I'm in the middle of my junior year. I, I need to finish college first. Uh, but long story short, I felt convicted I went and I came back ha- receiving a call to pastoral ministry. It so changed my life that I, 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 I was bracing myself for a hard conversation with parents while not going to medical school, but I but I made the decision after that one and a half year mission in Japan. I finished up last semester of college and then I went to Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. I think what did it for me was that because I was there, and I went there to teach English conversation courses at Mottropition Center, but I also taught a chapel time after every uh, class, and then I also co-led the youth group at, at, at a local church, and constantly giving Bible studies and preaching, I realized I had a greater passion for that than when I was studying in college, so I came back, and, I, and my first call was to call salvation through KBSU. Then my second call was a call to call the pastoral ministry. And I really thought I was going to be a pastor. But while I was at Golden Gate, I took some classes. I was doing really well. Professors started mentioning that I might want to think about further doctoral work. But it was my pastor at the mm-hmm. time where I was serving. He came up to me and he said, and I'll always be grateful for this. You know, you know Max, I've been praying and thinking about your, your call. And while I think you'll be a good pastor, I think you'll even be a better scholar. I want you to repray and think about that. Um, by then I married Sue and she said, oh yeah, I think you'll be a better scholar. <laughs> so, And so, and that's how I ended up at, at Fuller. And I went to Fuller. It was a, it was a great time. I was bivocational. I went, I was somehow a full-time student and a full-time church planner. And then, and it took me eight years to graduate. So you have, you have to, you do reap what you sow. If you're going to take that time to you know, no judgment time. here. Okay. And then I went, my first teaching position was at Westmont College for a year. That was a wonderful experience in Santa Barbara. Uh, that was only for a year. I was a sabbatical replacement, a visiting professorship at Wheaton College for three years. Mm. And I landed at North Park in 2006, and I've been there ever since.
0: Wow. So, one of the themes that comes out of this amazing narrative is the role of prayer. So yeah. like this woman, I don't, you didn't, I don't think you named her, but the woman yeah. who encouraged you to go to Japan. I mean, I don't yeah. know your relationship with her, what it was, yeah. but clearly you took her seriously.
1: Yeah. I mean, she was a pastor's wife and, and, and she, I, I, and I, and I say a renegade Baptist mm-hmm. church because this church was against denominational lines, fully mm-hmm. supportive women in ministry. So, That's
0: awesome. so I, she was a big influence,
1: big influence. Yeah. I don't want to say Ian ministry because this was a, this was, um, an English speaking Korean American ministry that expanded to being Asian American eventually. But nevertheless, it didn't have a Korean department until later. Okay. So unusually it started as an English okay. uh, speaking ministry. And then a the Korean department was added later to it. Usually Renegade, it's the opposite. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Usually it's the Korean department that starts the right. English ministry, but this is not the case. It's the, it's the opposite. Well, so. so
0: Grace and her prayer that led yeah. you from a very like a very promising medical track. Yeah. To yeah. a missionary in Japan.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm sure your parents love that conversation, but that's, yeah, we'll wait on that one. But yeah. then your pastor who encouraged you to go into scholarship again, yeah. it didn't seem like that was something you thought about.
1: Yeah, I didn't because I, I didn't think scholarship was in the horizon. Your
0: professors encouraged it as well as your pastor in prayer.
1: Yeah. I, I would have to give credit for one particular class, Gerald Borcher, who's now retired. He was a visiting professor from Southern Baptist Seminary at Golden Gate that year. And he taught a Gospel of John class. And I was really wrestling with this. I I didn't want to be a theological educator. I wanted to be in pastoral ministry because I had a character of what advanced studies in in the doctoral program might be like, and it might somehow dry out my faith. Mm. Um, I couldn't have been more wrong. It actually invigorated my faith. And that's something I can share a little bit later. But long story short, um, it was such a fantastic class in the Gospel of John. It felt like a retreat but he worked us so hard. I'd never done so much reading. It was my first introduction to uh, the Jewish St. epigrapha and a lot of primary sources that I've never heard about. And it just opened up my scholarly horizon, my Christian imagination of vocational ministry. And at the end of it, I said, okay, if this is what it means to be a theological educator, that I can actually, my teaching can also be like preaching at select points in the course, then I wanna do that and so and and so that was really that was actually but the the pastor who stopped me from or maybe not stop not stop he wanted me to pause because I was kind of in the ordination uh, grind and I I'm really grateful. I eventually did get ordained because we started a church plant in Los Angeles but I and that's what brought me there because once you went to what when we went to Fuller, there was already a church plant there. So we joined the church planting team. Nevertheless, to be able to have someone speak into my life and say, you know, I see your gifts and I feel like your God's calling you elsewhere. That's really important to me. Mm. And and it's important that it came from people that I really trusted. And so I, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Hey, I'm Daniel Lee, the academic dean of Fuller Seminary's Asian American Center. I hope you've been enjoying Centering. Our vision is to provide substantive conversations on topics that really matter to the Asian American Christian community and to others who care about us. This work is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Your contributions help cover the production and editing of this podcast and continue to affirm that this work is important to our community. To support centering, please visit fuller.edu slash
0: giveaac. Again, that link is... Filler.edu slash give
1: AAC. Thank you for listening.
0: You talked about the caricature you have of biblical PhD studies or further advanced biblical theological education. And I Mm -hmm. wonder if our listeners, if they too might have a caricature of seminary life or uh, doctoral studies. And how that can kind of really suck the life, the passion out of your love for God's word. And so can you speak into that? You, you referenced it.
1: Yes. And I'll tie this in about how I think theological studies can actually inform ministry and actually make us better than preachers and teachers at the same time. So I, my character was that the things I would be reading seemed to be, would be so separate from uh, life on the front line in, in the church that that disengagement will make it a very dry experience, dry emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. And that actually was not the case. So out of all things, when I was taking Ralph Martins, uh, the late Ralph Martins, yeah. God rest his soul, he was, he was te- still teaching at Fuller. I took his um, class on Greek Roman literature in the New Testament. I was studying the Greek magical Papyri. I was translating these papyri text. And, I, and then all of a sudden it just dawned on me this seems to be a recurrent theme, but a lot of the magical incantation formulas that I read, they kind of mirrored some of the prayers I was making in a bad way. You know, magic incantations have a particular formula. You do a ritual or you have an artifact, you make the God under your control and you make the God basically fulfill whatever requests you make of them. That could easily be my prayer life where I'm, I'm telling God to do this and this is what I want. And at the time I was meeting college students, uh, We had a college Bible study Friday nights, and I just brought in the Greek magical pyre, we had some fun, they read the incantation in class. And I talked about, does this sound familiar? And the students got it, it sounds like prayer. And it says, yeah, that's the danger. And if our mm-hmm. prayer life is trying to make God submit to our desires and our, and our prayer requests, then I'm not praying. I'm." I'm making prayer something like magic rather than a means to which to really commune with God. And so this was a great discovery for me that I I would say almost every doctoral seminar I had, Hmm. I was able to take some of that. And of course, there's a lot of under the water iceberg work. There's some things you just don't share and, and you just kind of share the good stuff. For the, for the Bible, but nevertheless, it, it, it informed my preaching, teaching, and, and I, in many ways, I think, it allowed me to be more faithful to the gospel message, challenged me when I, my lifestyle was watering down and I was bearing bad witness to it. And then I could share what I learned from my personal devotional life in the form of a Bible study or, or in a sermon. And, and I found an amazing alignment between theological studies pastoral ministry and my own formation as, as a Christian uh, minister. So loved it. I yeah. had a fantastic time at Fuller. So as a Fuller alumnus, I'm very proud of it.
0: I love to hear it. I really do. And of course, you know, I think there's so many great seminaries out there. And actually, I didn't know Max that you went to Fuller, but this is all the more <laughs> <laughs> plug in for Fuller Seminary. I think that uh, we have some great alumni that bear witness to some of the things that they're learning. I mean, the magical papyri, the incantation, you shared that in your Bible study. I think that's so yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And I think I'm hearing that connection again to prayer because this is not it's 1 Corinthians 7. You're not talking here at this moment, but you're still like, you're reading these primary texts and you're thinking, gosh, my prayer life resembles some of this idea of God is like the, the bending machine or genie in yeah. the bottle yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And how that was also used to challenge and reframe the way you understood prayer as mm. communion with God, mm. which is something that you came up, you talked about at the beginning in your theme of intimacy yeah. with, and pleasure. And so mm. I'm seeing a lot of connections in, in your journey, yeah. educational um, story. You're a working preacher and you teach actively at, your, mm. at North Park and at mm. um, churches in the Chicagoland area. It's clear that you see your work as being shaped by and for the church. But can you give kind of a more, and you've actually already given so many examples, so in a way this question is redundant, but let's talk about your more technical work on, say, the Apostle Paul in his Greco-Roman milieu, right? How do you see that kind of work, that more technical academic work, and then the, the way you, how do you translate that for the church? Or do you mm. sometimes see that you have kind of two tracks? And I don't mean this in a bad way. We're like, yes, there's some things that are just my hyper nerdy stuff, <laughs> right? And there are some things that are more translatable and other things that aren't. And I, I'm okay with that. You know, some people have different ways they understand their their scholarship. This Some of this is more technical. It's for the guild, the academy. And that's also an important place to, to play and to do do good work. And some of it is for the church. And some of it blends over and mixes over. So what what is it like for you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it is, as you stated, there, there's, I would say, a strong overlap between my uh, research. And at the same time, there are certain things that their contribution will be in the academy and not necessarily to the church. So it's, it's, it's a little bit more indirect. If the academy is serving the church, which is, which in the end, I think that's what the role of the academy should be, then uh, in an indirect way, the work I do that reaches academic circles and and there's debates and discussion on on what I what my what my thesis might be. That'll eventually inform the work of the church, but it's it's a much more indirect path. I was keenly interested in Paul because I was just really amazed at how intercultural he was. And how does uh, someone who whose background I saw the Pharisee become the ideal Preacher and teacher for Gentile congregations. And the Gregor world looks so different from the world within Judaism. Now, I don't want to segregate that too much because Martin Hingel's work on Hellenism, Judaism has, has begun a movement called Beyond the Hellenistic and Jewish divide. So we don't want to divide that too discreetly, but nevertheless, Paul is intercultural. So what I where I feel like my work might inform the work of the church is having more than one model of sharing the gospel, of Uh, of doing the work of evangelism and justice in our world and not it be just simply under kind of the old Niebuhran Christ against culture or Christ over culture so one of the things that I worked on after that monograph on world transformation was we I had I edited a book a collected book of essays called practicing intertextuality Mm -hmm. and one of the, the introduction essay that I wrote models at least seven different ways Paul interacts with his greco- and cultural environment. Sometimes he actually affirms what he thinks are major practices or maybe philosophical principles or uh, religious convictions that fit well within a gospel framework. And then th- sometimes he sees that certain things in his environment are act against or press against the grain of some of the assertions of the gospel. And so what he does is he does something called, not what I think, a friendly acculturation, but a competitive acculturation, where he adopts the language of his competitor rival claims and then modifies it to explain the gospel and says the gospel does this better, and this is why. Obviously, he's a person that's well-schooled, I think, in rhetoric, and I think he has a certain level of Roman educational background, being a citizen of Parsis, and that comes out in his the way he writes in his letters and also the way he understands his surroundings. I I try to model a much more sophisticated model because in New Testament scholarship, we're kind of um, the product of an old comparative religious approach Mm -hmm. where we're always asking, what's the source of Paul's thought? And the typical evangelical angst has always been, well, we don't want to make Paul anything like the woman world because then he's adopting ideas that are foreign to the gospel as if the gospel is not something that interacts right. more uh, it, with its environment as well as with the old testament from which it, it's a fulfillment of so when i talk about these interactions i just really wanted a, a, a more generous model that paul can affirm and disagree He can modify and he can adopt. He has an understanding of what the gospel is uh, based on his uh, Damascus encounter and also his conversation with the church in Jerusalem. But nevertheless, um, he is very amazingly missional in the way he engages ancient pluralism. And I, I can learn anything about how he engages ancient pluralism with such flexibility and creativity. To Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. The slave and the free. I became all things, all men, by all, all people that by all means, I might win them. If I can take that missional flexibility and apply it to today's pluralism,
0: yeah.
1: where the Christian needs to engage in public discourse and do it well and wisely, then I think my research on Paul and the world is very germane to what the church needs to engage with today. But it's it's a much longer path to get there. I have to kind of explain what ancient pluralism is, how Paul engages it, and then make the analog. What well, how to engage pluralism in our context today?
0: And you do that, you do that very well right now. Oh, thank you. you. Flushing <laughs> that out.
1: And I think so, you're also explaining the work of the preacher, right? Yeah. Yeah. The and we live in very uh-huh, so, go ahead. we live in very particular context. I have most of my pastoral experience has been in Asian American. Uh, ministries. Uh so while we they kind of grow into more multi-ethnic ministries over time, it's predominantly the center is Asian American. That's different from the pastor who's in an intentionally multicultural church or is in a predominantly white evangelical setting. So we 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 would acculturate these things different ways, but nevertheless the boss the gospel becomes flesh when it's acculturated in a particular ministry or context. We can't forget that it becomes
0: flesh when it becomes acculturated. That's really That's really helpful way to put it. So I'm hearing you talking about Paul as being really intercultural and interactive with his Greco-Roman context, but deeply missional.
1: Yep. Deeply missional.
0: And that's exactly right. Really creative. And that's. Yeah. He's Uh, He's constantly uh, translating.
1: Yes. And I, and I like the word conceptual translation, because I think that's the best of what New Testament theology offers us. We have Uh, We can do exegesis, and if we're limited to historical criticism, then we're always, I feel like we're not trying to let the beauty of the text speak to us. We're trying to hammer out a meaning of the text. And and, um, there's this poem, Introduction to Poetry, by uh, Billy Collins, and there's one line that's fantastic. Rather than, you know, racing on the surface of poem and waving to the reader on the other side of the shore, I tie the poem to a chair and I whip it to death, trying to hammer out its meaning. (laughs) And I think historical criticism teaches you to do that, just to hammer out one meaning from the text relevant to the original context, and that's, and it stops, but then the word of God becomes dead because it's not applicable to our age. And I think an intercultural model for me allows us to apply God's word in brand new contexts the, and I want to say this very carefully. I don't think there's one meaning to the text. I think there are bad meanings to the text. I think we can interpret the text wrongly. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to put that on a gradation. And I like the phrase that Richard Hayes uses. I want to interpret always with the grain of the text. But nevertheless, we don't want to limit the Holy Spirit and, and, and say that the text only generates one meaning. And my job as exegesis is to find that one meaning. Intercultural readings of the Bible tells me that there's a multiplicity of meanings that can be generated text and the, it's the work of the holy spirit to communicate that meaning in the particular life that i'm living at this present moment in the social context that i'm living. and so for me that's what makes being asian american with all its complexities just an exciting part of my, my scholarship.
0: well said max. You know, i don't know if many people know this here you you alluded to it earlier but many just a few years ago you and milton eng yes and maybe this was prior, like it took years to actually come to fruition, but it actually was inaugurated uh, in the Institute for Biblical Research, otherwise yeah. known as IBR,
1: yeah. recently. And yeah. it
0: focuses on Asian American biblical interpretation
1: from the perspective
0: of evangelical voices.
1: Yeah, that's, And so that's
0: right. tell us a little bit about why you both felt the need to do this and how it's going.
1: Okay. Well, I have to give credit for Milton for being initiator to start this group. I know Milton has his own passion for how he wants to see Asian American scholarship be a more centered voice in the wider circle of the academy. But nevertheless, let me just share a little bit of my journey because actually Milton's invitation to participate it was a gift because I wasn't because necess- I, I was at just the right moment ready to do it. I went to the scholarship uh, as a pastor, uh, as student in the 90s and I emerged in the early 2000s. Doing intercultural readings of the Bible, especially with the amagal cir- cir- circles, was not well received. And I and I actually paid the piper on it. I won't give I'll give its broad details. So, but it affected anything from promotion to hiring, even though my research was Paul in the Greco-Roman world, because I also engaged in intercultural readings of the Bible. I submitted, some example, a paper for the Asian American Biblical hermeneutics Group at SBL, and it was accepted and I read it, and had a great experience. Nevertheless, that was used pejoratively. Mm. This is not what I heard from any one person. But if I were to generalize critique, Asian American biblical nudics is not real biblical interpretation. It's in many ways, Jesus Reading text something that's not there. And I remember having a conversation with one scholar uh, about what I'm trying to do. And the person was very sympathetic. But nevertheless, the person came back to me and said, you know, I understand that sometimes being in a different social location, you ask different questions of the text. But as long as those answers are for your social location, not everyone else, I think it's okay. And I said, well, that doesn't make sense to me. So you're saying that white people who bring questions to the text, when whatever theological convictions they come from bearing their interpretation of the text, that's only applicable for white people, but not for anyone else. It's for the whole church in the same way uh, there are certain experiences in the Christ, uh, in the Asian American c- communities, Christian communities, that I think we can really speak prophetically to other communities that are in a different social context than us. And we can learn as a corporate body of Christ from one another. But there was a lot of pushback at the beginning. So much so that when, and this is, I, I wanna give a hat tip to uh, Craig Keener. In 2011, Craig Keener did a special uh, session on IBR. It was just a one-time session, but nevertheless, it introduced intercultural readings of the Bible to IBR. He invited me to speak, and I turned him down because mm-hmm. I had been so burnt by the evangelical world that I didn't want to. I didn't want to put my neck out there and and and, and you no, know, kind of receive vitriol for, for my work. Now I was wrong because I heard that the meeting went really well. And and Craig Keener had, I think the intercultural competency to manage that session really well. So when I heard that, it kind of changed my heart a little bit. Long story short, when um, there are students in North Park. So they came up to the faculty as a whole, and they said that curriculum, they don't see their pastoral experience reflected in what was being taught. They want to change in curriculum. And I felt by that time so convicted that when it was the students of color at our seminary that came up and said, we want to change, that I immediately went to the dean and said, you know, I've been thinking about teaching intercultural readings of the Bible course for so long, but I've been, been very hesitant to do it, but after, hearing our students, I really want to do it. Put me on the docket. If you you will support this course, I will teach it for as as long as students keep coming to it. So I've been teaching since uh, uh, 2010, uh, Intercultural Readings of the Bible class. I don't teach it by myself. I always try to co-teach it. I invite guest lectures. So KK Yao at Garrett has come in and given a special session, Danny Carroll, Bruce Fields, all of which set me up where, when Milton, said that, you know, I'm thinking starting an, an intercultural readings, uh, Asian American biblical interpretation group for IBR. I said, I'm in, I'll do it. I don't have time to do it, but I will make time to do it. And I'll trust that God will redeem the time back in some other way. And I'm very grateful. And I'm very grateful to you, Jeanette, that for our inaugural session, you participated, Russell Jung, Amos Young, all really yeah, good folks. That
0: forward. was an yeah. honor. You know, I'm part of the A-ABI, um group in the SBL. And so, it's yeah. really- urging to know that in the in both spaces mm-hmm. that asian american biblical interpretation is being centered
1: mm-hmm. i think
0: that's really important and vital you want let's quick turn back to first corinthians 7 because you okay. mentioned that as an asian american as a korean american maybe more sp- particularly mm-hmm. that the the way prayer has been so it's so sh- it's such a rich part of the tradition
1: yeah yeah
0: your mm-hmm. own experience can you speak into that and about how you could say your hermeneutical imagination is maybe expanded as a result of that to understand prayer differently in first corinthians 7 than often in commentaries and and different kind of works as usually it's portrayed
1: yes and i'm i'm really grateful for the question because i it allows me to share a little bit about why i think we need the whole body of christ to bear witness to the gospel especially and so It's not just Asian-American, but African-American, Latino-American, Pacific Islander, whoever, uh, uh, whoever, whatever ethnic group one identifies with, our experiences in those communities are vital to the whole witness of the gospel. And and the reason why I think this way is because sometimes a person in one ethnic group, they don't have a way to understand what Paul talks about analogically, because they have no experience in which to hang Paul's insight so that they can actually see what's going on. So l- let me try to explain. When I came to the conviction that this passage is telling me that prayer is better than sex, I will go, "That make that's right." I, I I completely understand what Paul's saying here, because I experienced that and I grew up around Christians who who practiced it. So um, I want to do a shout out to my mom. You know, I would wake up at four in the morning, uh, even Thank though I was a teenager in high school or junior high, or, or or high or, or junior high, because her prayers woke me up. She was a working mom. Both my parents were. She would get up at four in the morning, pray for an hour so that five, she can make the commute from where we live in East Bay to San Francisco over the Bay Bridge. And so sometimes she was so passionately crying out in prayer. And Mm -hmm. and Koreans don't pray in silence. Koreans Mm -hmm. just, we, we voice our prayers. So uh, and sometimes she was praying my name. So I would wake up and go, what is it? And I realized, realized, oh, what is she praying about? It's making me nervous. She's praying so it's passionately about the, Yeah. But I, I like to say that she woke up the sun or so, oh, woke up the sun with her mm-hmm. prayers. Not just me as a son, but the, the rising sun. So when I say that, my mom, her prayers woke up the sun. It's it's Anne also, not just me as her son, but also I think the rising sun. She would she her prayers started before the sun rose. And um, I just remembered that. I mean, it, and, and the fact that she prayed for me that passionately, and you know, today, Faye still is a witness in my life. Uh, yeah. My mom went through a lot as an immigrant mom. I never met my maternal grandfather because uh, very early on, he left the family. He abandoned my grandmother and five children. My mom's the oldest. So mm-hmm. she took on the role of the second parent. She put two of her brothers, one through medical school and one through dental school. She she brought she was the first immigrant to the States. She brought the rest of the family over. She even helped two of her younger brothers get through uh, denti- dentistry school and, and, and medical school. She went to, I would literally hell and back and everything in between. And I just always get amazed when I think about her 80th birthday, which was a couple of, couple of years ago, her life verse was Romans 828. Mm-hmm that in all things, God works for the good, for the good, good of those who love him, who've been called according to your purpose, and our entire family, we're talking about 80th birthday, extended family, every cousin, aunt, uncle, relative, you know, third cousin, second cousin, whatever, that could possibly be there, we're all there, and she challenges us all, no matter what we go through in life, love God, and see God's purpose in the situation, and God will work out all things for our good, and because he, she lived such a hard life. I was just like in tears when I heard her say that. Because mm-hmm. I know what that verse meant to her. So I feel like, you know, can we experience God with such intimacy that hell is around us? The situation is not getting better. Yet we know we're with God. And that's actually enough. Grace is sufficient. My mom lived that. And, and her access to grace was through prayer. So can prayer be both a joy and a pleasure, and the means through which we, are, you know, we, the Christian community collectively and, and and people individually can be transformed, absolutely yes. And so, because I saw and experienced that, when I thought that this was Paul was saying, I didn't reject it. I said, I think this is what Paul's saying. Whereas, and I, I don't want to be too, I don't throw too much shade, so just a little bit of shade. I don't see comparable prayer practices in the wider Evangelical community. I've been a part of uh, and participated in white Evangelical churches. And it bothers me when praying 10 minutes is too long. I mean, I'm used to like praying. When I was in pastor ministry, we sometimes the moment called for us to extend the prayer beyond the hour into two hours or three hours. Koreans and I think other Asian Americans know what it means to be a retreat. And The message was so powerful. We do an all-night prayer meeting from 10 p.m. to like 4 o'clock in the morning, sleep two hours, and then we start the next message, you know, after breakfast. We, We know there's passion and there's power in experiencing God's presence where I will say this. There's a great line in Thomas Merton's No Man is an Island where he talks about timeless prayer. We're so wrapped up in the presence of God we lose sense of time. Mm. And so hours pass by and we don't even know it. Mm-hmm. That's what I experienced at being in the Asian American church, that kind of prayer life. Yeah. So when I read First Corinthians 7, I go, yeah, this is it. Now I get it now. And whereas I think if, if you never had that experience, your maybe one Christian imagination is muted. Mm. So one can never think of the possibility that prayer can be better than sex.
0: Wow. You're making me think about when my, my, when my husband and I sent his parents on a trip, mm. a well-deserved, much-needed trip. I, I asked my mother-in-law, like, don't wake up at five in the morning for tongsong Gido or for the right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. morning prayer for like the crying out, Lord, 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 because I wanted her to rest, you know, mm. to, to take a break. And mm. I think there is a space for that, right? Yeah. But yeah, to, when, you, when you talk about prayer like this, it's such intimacy and ecstasy with God. It just kind of makes me pause about how even I perceived some of the, you know, re, you know it's so tedious to wake up at four or five in the morning every day. Mm. It's so cold. It's mm. so dark. Mm. I think that not only was it a cry for out of desperation, the immigrant life is, is, is a grind, you know, but really an expression of deep passion, deep intimacy, um, deep ecstasy with, with God. I think that's yeah. found and, re, and, and a way to reimagine prayer and revitalize prayer. For even those who aren't familiar with that tradition.
1: Yeah, and I think, and, and you touched on a really great point because I feel it too. Sometimes prayer is work, it feels like work. But, but the moment I meet God, all of a sudden it doesn't feel like work anymore. It, it, it seems like pure bliss and joy. And I think that's where we need to persevere in our prayers to really knock on the door of heaven until God opens it and we actually enter into God's presence. Um, and I, and for me, I would never have learned that if I wasn't discipled in the Asian American church.
0: Max, nice. I think that's a great place to end this conversation. I want to say, so ask so many more questions, but I didn't go in thinking that we we're going to leave with such um, a richer imagination for language, um, um conceptual ten- understanding of prayer. Um, mm-hmm. and so I thank you for leading us through your own journey, through, uh, in your own life, but also through First Corinthians 7 in your own research, it really coalesced. Yes, so come out people and know that biblical scholarship, there are biblical scholars who are doing really incredible work and it's for the church. And so I hope that that's been encouraging and inspiring for you all. Thank you again, Matt. Amen, Amen. thank you, you.
1: It was a joy being here. Thank you very much. Appreciate Bye. it.
0: This has been Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss how the Bible speaks to us. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are.